Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, we've jumped on a plane and we're heading across the water to our friends in the US where I have the absolute honour of speaking to a gentleman who spent a total of 26 years in the American government, 21 of those in the FBI and five as a prosecutor. Richard Frankfell has held every position in the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York and he joins me this evening to talk about his career and some of the interesting aspects and the jobs that he's undertaken. Richard, good evening. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Uh, thank you, Oliver. Very good. Richard, at the, like every good detective, I like to start at the beginning of one's career. Tell me, you came into policing or into the FBI as a prosecutor, but why the move into policing? What was or, in, or investigations more broadly into the FBI? I had always wanted to be an FBI agent. You know, I, I wanted to be one when I was a kid. You know, when I when I was uh, you know running around, you know, chasing uh, my friends. Uh, you know, I thought you know I either wanted to be uh, you know Batman, an FBI agent, or a baseball player. <laughs> and uh, I don't look good in tights, so Batman was out. I'm not very good at baseball, so baseball was out. So the only thing left over was to be the FBI agent. Um, but I, you know, uh, I, I always had the interest. Um, and in the end, uh, I went into uh, I went to law school, and I was a prosecutor. But um, you know, I had always maintained that desire to be an FBI agent, 
And then in 1993, there was an attack on the World Trade Center in New York, the first attack on the World Trade Center. Um, and I was watching the TV from my office in uh, Suffolk County, New York. And I actually saw one of my old law school buddies walking across the screen with his FBI raid jacket on. And I said, I'm going. And that's when I started my application process. I often talk about on the podcast, uh, family reactions to people joining law enforcement can be mixed in terms of some people being very supportive, some people a bit cautious as to kind of what does this mean for our relationship? What was family's response? Obviously, you'd pursued this amazing career in law, but you've jumped across into the FBI. Was there any was it positive feedback or were there some resistance? Did you lose friends? No, I did not lose any friends. That's for sure. Um, I had a little bit of pushback from my uh, uh, my parents, uh, you know, who were very happy that their son, the lawyer, was a lawyer. And then all of a sudden their son, the lawyer, now is going into the FBI. So I did have a little bit of pushback from them, but then no, not enough to stop it. You know, they uh, um, in fact, I think once I got into the FBI, they were very happy I was in the FBI. But uh, the initial um, shock may have been a bit for them. Um, and uh my girlfriend at the time, uh, I guess, didn't didn't have a problem with it because we're married, you know, still. And that's a fascinating story in itself because I, I will talk a bit later on because one of the greatest support networks of any law enforcement officer right across the world is their family because they give them the ability to not have to worry about what's going on at home and allow them to go and do their job so successfully. But I want to talk about your period between 95 and 96 when you walk through the gates of the FBI Academy Policing and investigative work globally is a very complex vocation. There's lots of legislation to understand policy, procedure and protocols. How did you find the academic side of the training as well as the physical side? Well, the the academic, I, I did not have much of a problem with. I'd gone to law school. I'd gone to college. Um, you know, it, it wasn't the same, but it was the same. In other words, if I was able to do it, through that, um, I was able to do it in, in the FBI Academy. I will tell you, I was not the top of the class at the FBI Academy in academics, but I also was in the bottom. Um, but uh, it, it was it was very doable. They presented very well. Um, you know, their goal is to train you. And so therefore, you know, if you accept their training, um, you're able to do it. The, the physical was not that hard for me, only because, um, you know, I, you know, I had been in it. Um, an athlete, I, I will say I was never a great athlete, but I've always been an athlete. So uh, the, uh, the, the athletic part was not that hard. I was a wrestler um, in high school and for a year of college. Um, and uh, so the defensive tactics also was not that uh, hard for me. Um, I had never boxed before. And the first time I ever put boxing gloves on was at the FBI Academy. So that was a, a real treat. Um, but uh, other than that, um, you know, I actually enjoyed my time at the FBI Academy. The other thing is I had never really shot. I think I had shot a weapon once, a handgun. Uh, I was a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout, so I had shot a shotgun, but I had never shot a handgun except one time as a prosecutor where they took us out and it was a five-shot or, or a six-shot revolver just so that you got the feel of what a gun felt like. Um, but the FBI training was fantastic, uh, and by the end I was shooting hundreds. So... I really enjoyed, I actually enjoyed the training because, it, um, you know, it, I was doing something I had never done before and the other stuff was not that difficult. So upon graduation, you head out for your, to continue your training or what we often describe as that kind of probationary period to get you through those initial assessments and the, and the on-street training. 
was it a total different reality from the academy was this now the real world for you you were starting to see real cases understanding what your role was going to be as an FBI investigator? Yeah, no, it it, it, it was very different. I, I will say, just going back for a second to the FBI Academy, the one thing that the um, FBI does have is Hogan's Alley, which I just rave about whenever I talk to my friends about it, because it's got everything there. It's got a deli, it's got um, housing, it's got a bank. And that bank has been, um, has had, has been robbed more than any other bank in the world. It gets robbed once a week, every week, every year. And that's because that's where we do our final test for um, uh, being an FBI agent. And so they'll rob a bank and you'll come up in your FBI cars and there'll be a shootout. So you'll actually be involved using simunition in a shootout. And of course, because these guys are very good at being bank robbers, they get away. And so now we have to go find them. And so we use our deductive reasoning, everything that we've been trained, we go back, we set up a command post and we take the intelligence and we interview witnesses and we do all that. And then we go back and we find the, the bad guys. And then, the, you know, usually they're going to be holed up in a hotel room. And so then we either have to talk them out or we have to use um, tactical uh, entrance to get them out. And again, it is, um, it's as real world as can be in an academic setting. So then you move forward and now I'm in, in New York and it is different. New York, I think is different than almost every other city in the world as far as uh, how things happen. But you do it as an FBI agent. So, um, you know, I went there and for, I think, 11 months, I did background investigations. And that's so that you learn, you know, you get better at your interviewing process. You get out and you you get to meet people. You engage with the public as an FBI agent. But while you're doing that, you're also helping out on arrests. So that you're getting a, few, a little bit of arrest practice and all that. And then from there, they actually move you over to surveillance operations where you get to learn how to be a surveillance agent. Um, uh, driver and and actually learn how to follow people and you know blend in and then if need be become overt and deal with those people when you when you arrest them and again in new york it's probably a little different because of the subway systems and the traffic and all that and you have to learn how to deal with this and overcome the the issues that are there so the training was very good and the training went on for i think about definitely over a year probably a year and a half so you are pretty prepared at the end of that training to take on a myriad of different investigations which may have come across your desk. You think you are because you've done all <laughs> this and now you're ready to go. And, you know, as a, as a new agent, like I'm ready for the world, I'm ready to take it on. And then you go out and you realize that maybe I haven't learned <laughs> everything. And, and, but I happen to be very lucky. I went to a squad of agents um, where uh, these were the guys who had been on for 20 years. They had done fantastic things. And so they trained me on how to do certain things. And then we were able to work with certain NYPD detectives and they trained me. And it's because of all that training that I was able to do my investigations. Tell us about your exposure to probably one of the larger investigations at the start of your career where you were doing sort of the, the entry level investigative work for the TWA 800 incident. Tell us about that incident and your work and your involvement in that case. On July 17, 1996, the doomed Transworld Airlines Flight 800 Boeing 747-131 jetliner was heading from New York City towards Paris and was scheduled to stop there before continuing on to its final destination in Rome. However, after just 12 minutes, chaos ensued in the sky as an explosion occurred, and several others were heard right after the first one. 
NBC News reported that the explosion occurred in the evening around 8.30 p.m. Sadly, the plane was destroyed on the spot, and its debris ended up in the Atlantic Ocean close to East Moriches, New York. There were 212 passengers and 18 crew members on the flight. No one survived the horrific incident. The incident was a shock and a tragedy, of course, but since it took place just a couple of days before the 1996 Summer Olympics were supposed to begin in Atlanta, many wondered whether this was an intentional incident that was planned beforehand by forces unseen. Terrorism was strongly suspected from nearly the moment that TWA Flight 800 crashed. According to CNN, at the time of the crash, the U.S. was already on high alert because of a number of terroristic acts that had taken place a few years before. Additionally, some believe that notorious high-profile figures such as Muammar Gaddafi of Libya and Iraq's Saddam Hussein could have been involved in the incident. Ex-CIA Director and Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta remarked that Gaddafi was a strong suspect because Libya had been linked to an earlier incident involving Pan Am Flight 103 in Scotland, known as the Lockerbie bombing. Panetta has said, The investigation was looking at almost every possibility, including state actors. We were looking at Iraq and Saddam Hussein. We were looking at, you know, the possibility Iran might have played a role in this. There were other theories as well. NBC News reported that another angle explored was the possibility of a missile being fired from a Navy ship. Robert Francis, who is the vice chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, later said it was impossible to get answers in a short period. He recalled, There was no ability to make a determination quickly. We were picking up the wreckage in 130 feet of water. Yeah, again, so I was a a new agent. Um, I just got, I literally was ending my new agent training and I was going to go to my first permanent squad. And that was the night of TWA 800. The next day I was going to go to the squad. So instead I got a phone call and they said, you're going back out to Suffolk County, New York, which is where... Um, the plane um, exploded off the coast of Suffolk County and you're going to be a liaison person with Suffolk County law enforcement and the district attorney's office because that's actually where I had worked for the last five years before entering Mm -hmm. the FBI. So I went out there and I did everything from guard duty to engaging with law enforcement to assisting other um, much more experienced agents when they had to go deal with um, with their part of the investigation. You know, just like everyone, you know, you have to cut your teeth on something. Um, And, you know, as a brand new agent, uh, I would have loved to have been a case agent on the case. But my duty was to help the other agents who were much more experienced. And that's what I did. What's it like at that at that age and that with that junior experience going to take part in, you know, it's recorded as being the third biggest aviation, the third largest aviation disaster in American history. What's it like taking part in something so significant? You realize you're part of something very big. Um, and you're just, at least I was, I was just happy to be part of the investigation. Um, I'm a new agent. I, I mean, I was, I was 31 years old. Um, so I wasn't a baby, but I also, in the FBI eyes, I was a baby. Because again, I was mm-hmm. a, I was in there only about a year, year and a half. And now I'm working on one of the biggest cases in the FBI that's going on at the time. And so just to be part of that um, gave me a sense of purpose for being out there. And again, I, you know, law enforcement at times is not the most exciting thing in the world. You know, working a a gate to make sure that no one came in and disturbed evidence at three o'clock in the morning on a Sunday night is not very exciting. But to know that you're part of that case, it helps drive you through. And and to know that, hey, listen, this is where I'm cutting my teeth. 
I will get to that next level down the line. And that came shortly thereafter when you transferred from that posting after initial training to the team of, and correct me if I'm wrong, C16 within the organised crime investigations section, and you're 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 overseeing kind of the outlets of the Gambino family investigations. Now, for our viewers that aren't familiar with organized crime and mafia groups in the U.S., tell us a little bit about the Gambino family and your work in organized crime. Talk about patronizing somebody. I mean, people would come in, they would, they would fall all over themselves to kiss his ring. It would be like visiting the Pope. Carlos' motivation became get as rich as you can, as fast as you can. Gambino was hard to get on your radar screen. You know, he was an elusive character, and I think very deliberately so. This guy was calling the shots, and those shots ended in murder. How he himself avoided being murdered is uh, an astonishing mystery to me. The Gambinos did it all. Racketeering, gambling, loan sharking, extortion, money laundering, prostitution, fraud, hijacking, and fencing. But somehow, they remained hidden from the public eye. Illegal business was thriving while the police were helpless. And this lasted for whole generations, each mob boss passing the crown to another until a strange twist in the story led to the end of the Gambinos as we know them. Sure, so it, with they, they call it La Cosa Nostra, which is American Mafia, um, there are five families. And so in the New York office, which during the 70s, 80s, 90s, New York was the the ground central for, for American Mafia at that time. Um, you had the five families, and we actually had more than five squads of investigators looking into the organized crime at that point. Um, John Gotti, who many people have heard about, uh, had just been arrested. Sammy Gravano uh, had just uh, testified against him, and John was sentenced, I believe, to whether it was life imprisonment or something that equivalent to life, uh, he had been sentenced. So I was coming in just at the end of that. So it was still very big in um, uh, in the news. You had also uh, the, the uh, something that they, they, they called the commission case, which charged many members of La Cosa Nostra from different families. It was a very well-known case in the United States. And so coming to an organized crime squad at that point in my career, I was very excited. I was going to, again, C-16, which was the Gambino, Cosa Nostra Family Investigative Squad. Um, I was going to uh, be one of the case agents uh, investigating the Gaudis and or other members of the Gambino family. Um, and so I was just, I was very excited to join that squad. And that squad had on it the people who took down John Gotti. They, these wow. are the people who had flipped Sammy Gravano. So, I went and they were now training me how to be an agent. You know, you receive your training in the academy, but now you're receiving your street training. These are the guys mm -hmm. who actually how to go out and find bad guys, you know, go out and how to find informants, go out and how to deal with the public and and in how to deal in finding these people. So it was um it was a great time and I received uh, probably um some of the best training of anyone ever in the FBI. You know, the guys in my squad um, provided that. It must have been, was there a sense of intimidation in going up against such significant crime families? You know, they say 
fear is actually a healthy thing to have because it makes you be on edge and you're, you're constantly alert and you're constantly aware of what's going on around you. If you're out there trying to find informants, liaising and working with the public, you must be constantly aware of what's happening around you. What was that feeling like in terms of knowing the entities that you're up against? It must have been, was there a sense of intimidation in going up against such significant crime families? You know, they say fear is actually a healthy thing to have because it makes you be on edge and you're, you're constantly alert and you're constantly aware of what's going on around you. If you're out there trying to find informants, liaising and working with the public, you must be constantly aware of what's happening around you. What was that feeling like in terms of knowing the entities that you're up against? Yeah, so w- when you go out, and especially, you know, w- when when they don't know who I am, there's still some apprehension. But when they know who you are, um, because now I've talked to them and they know I'm an FBI agent. It's not like I'm undercover or covert, um, you know, uh, um, or new agent. So now that they, you know, I've gone and spoken to them, um, you, you, you're on edge, but you also know, at least with most of the people in La Cosa Nostra, they don't want to make it a federal case. They don't want to get, they don't want to, injure an FBI agent or, you know, or worse, an FBI agent, because if they do, they know the hammer that would come down on them could be, you know, earth shattering because mm. they've, they've hurt, uh, you know, or, or done something to an FBI agent. So you at least have that in the back of your mind. But then again, you know, not everyone abides by the rule, so to speak. So yeah, you were always, you always had your head on a swivel. You always were on edge. And when I did engage with them, um, you know, and we'd have witty repartee, let's say, you know, when we were speaking to each other or when I was serving them with papers because we were going to um, we were going to search them or we wanted them to come into the office and give us their fingerprints for evidentiary purposes. Um, you always made sure that you had other people around who had your back. A part of that work was reviewing cold case investigations whereby you were trying to see if you could um, link any of these families with historical homicides and serious crime in order to be able to hold them accountable did you were you able to have any breakthroughs with those cold case investigations or do they still remain open today no this was this was fantastic um uh work that you know i i i kind of say uh i'm I'm the uh forest gump of the fbi because i was (laughs) in great cases but i was working with some really great investigators so with the cold cases we worked with the NYPD detectives cold case squad. Um, and these guys were 15, 20, 30, 35 year term detectives who were working these cold cases. And then we had our Gambino side. So I come in as a Gambino expert. They come in with their expertise of years on the street and going after homicides. And we worked together. So I worked on a couple of cases. Um, and one of the cases that we worked, um, we were able it was a, it had been a 20 year old uh, homicide where uh, some Gambinos had killed two guys who were owned a bar in New York, but were also boxing instructors for the local boys club. Um, and wow. they disrespected a member of the Gambino family. So they were later on that same day, they were killed in a shootout at their bar. And so it had gone unsolved and working with these NYPD detectives and agents from the FBI. Um, uh, we were able to actually determine that there were three people involved in the shooting. And we were, one of them, I believe, had passed on. We were able to identify the two others who had never been identified. 
And so working again with these guys was great. I was able to bring something to the table because of the databases and the information and the analytics that I brought, the cops brought, you know, again, how to act on the street. I mean, you know, going out with these police officers on the way that they acted and the way that they engaged with the public and with the bad guys was completely different than the FBI. So, mm. you know, um, it, it gave me a second insight into how to engage on certain things, especially when you're talking about homicides and you're talking about Howard Beach and Ozone Park. And these are uh, um, these are areas uh, in Queens where the FBI was not beloved. So, you know, we were able to do this investigation. Um, and uh, over time, um, we were actually able to um, identify all three people who were involved in the homicide. So that was fantastic. Uh, there was a second one, and this goes back a little bit to a um, uh, another case that we did where we went undercover in a prison and we were able to um, uh, do a uh, court-authorized wiretap and listen to Gene Gotti, who was in prison, speaking to another made member of the Gambino family. And they discussed a homicide where somebody had been uh, stabbed, but we, we weren't able to know who was killed because they never mentioned the name. And we got all this great evidence, okay? And, but, but it wasn't enough to actually make an arrest because we didn't know who they were talking about. That this Yeah, other... who's, who's your victim? Yeah, we, we didn't know. And I actually had moved on, and we'll talk about that. I had moved on to another squad. But the guys on my squad stayed with this case and remained involved in it. Ten years later, they were able to identify who that person was. And so they were able to use my the tapes from our Title III and their new found intelligence, put together a case and actually arrest the person on that case and convict him in court 10 years ago. Wow. So it was a great case, great case. That's incredible. And you, and you think to yourself, though, that surely these crooks. That's incredible. And you, and you think to yourself, though, that surely these crooks in prison surely they know their phones are being listened to and recorded or is it in, was that the, the years past where that just didn't go on it was only if you had a wiretap up well actually this we were able to it was it was something new we had actually um uh we were able to place a wiretap inside a visitor center so they were actually meeting in person and because we were able to put the device near them so that we only listened to them not to anyone else in the in the uh in the facility but we were able to get that, you know, that information um, from that court authorized wiretap. Um, that's how we were able to get it. So it was, it, it, it was again, they they were not expecting it because they were actually speaking person to person within a visitor center in a prison. And when you're dealing with 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 individuals that have so much manipulation over so many different systems, obviously one of the greatest worries is corruption and manipulating prison staff. Is this something that gets done without? it's on a need to know basis and the only people that know are you guys in the fbi yeah well we knew and then the warden knew at the prison and then a couple of his and i don't want to call him his trusted uh lieutenants but the people that he knew he could trust mm. um because maybe everyone could be trusted we didn't know but we kept it as you said because you don't know mm. you know and especially in a prison where just you know the, the prisoners see more than you think they see. We we yeah. kept very tight as to how we were doing what we did and how we were able to actually get the, the devices um, into the prison and then without um, anyone really knowing about it. 
And this was not just a, uh, a one-day process. This, this investigation took two years of undercover on and off investigations um, uh, over a two-year period. And during that time, uh, again, we were able to get other intelligence and information um, that helped uh, FBI investigations in other areas uh, of, of what we did. The skill set that you brought into the FBI with your law degree and your work as a district attorney or as assistant district attorney, I should say, led to you becoming in-house counsel within that same unit. You must bring a wealth of knowledge. You've got career detectives that you're working with who've been skilled in their tradecraft for 30 years plus. But equally, they've got a young man who's joining them who's got an exceptional knowledge of the law and, and, and the rules of evidence. And that must have been a great help. And even more so when you stepped into that in-house counsel position. Yeah, so it's it's basically like a it's like a chief counsel, or I was an associate chief counsel in the in the New York office, and you're basically you know you're 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 going into other areas. So we advised our agents on how to do certain investigations when they needed our help, especially with wiretaps, um, yeah. or anything court authorized, or anything that was considered um, to be um, sensitive type of investigation we would consult and assist and, and provide our expertise on. And then also on just mundane employment activities. Uh, <laughs> the, the bane of my existence was auto accidents. Um, you know, uh, in New York City, I think <laughs> Adrian gets into an auto accident and we had to deal with those. So it was, it was the entire area of, uh, of being, you know, in the general counsel's office, but mm. in the New York office. So we specifically worked only with the agents and employees of the New York office. But again, it, it was good. Some of what I did was legal training. Um, I was provide, you know, uh, four times a year, agents are required to get legal training. And so we would provide that legal training and it would be on everything from employment law to um, search warrants, to um, extra, uh, to sensitive investigations. You name the, the, the you know, what, what we talked about. Um, and then we would also provide um, legal advice if people were going to be doing um, search warrants or executing um, uh, arrest warrants and they wanted, and they were going to try to do something and they wanted to know uh, specific legal issues, we would handle that. It's incredible. And then you move, and this is an interesting movement, into hostage negotiation training. Was that an area of expertise that interested you? What led you in that? arena and field it's quite it's quite a particular one yeah so actually i believe i did this i forget if i did it as a um as an agent on the gambino squad i think i did so i was actually still on the gambino squad but in the fbi a lot of our um a lot of the agents in the fbi have have a secondary duty mm. everyone it's you know we kind of joke around it's like the marines everyone's a marine a U.S. Marine, but then U.S. Mm. Marines are specialized in certain things, but everyone is still a U.S. Marine. In the FBI, yeah. everyone's an, agents are agents. That's what you are. And then a lot of us have secondary duties, though. So one of my secondary duties was legal counsel. Another secondary duty, which I was trained in, was to be a hostage negotiator. And I had no training before I entered the FBI. And they sent me um, down to uh, Quantico, Virginia, which is the FBI Academy. And I went for specialized training in hostage negotiation, um, where I believe this was some of the best training I've ever been part of. And they 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 train you in how to be a negotiator. And so I did that. And, um, you know, then you have continuing training through your 
career. So every so often, you know, we'd either have in-house training in New York or we work with our local police departments because a lot of the police departments in New York have their own negotiators. So we would work with them on their cases. Was there any period during your time as a trained hostage negotiator that you had great successes? And are there times when you had failures? And how did you deal with those? Luckily, I, I don't actually remember any failures. Um, and, and and when I say that, it's probably because I did not do as many as other people because I, I did move up in the FBI. And so I had to leave that behind. Um, yeah. We were involved in a couple of cases um, where we were able to get back. Um, uh, somebody had been kidnapped in the Philippines and we were working, we, you know, we are always working, by the way, with case squads, with other people. We're just the negotiators. We were not doing certain other things that were going on. But the the person in the Philippines um, was uh, successfully reunited with his family. Um, we had a case actually in Iraq where uh, a reporter was kidnapped and working with the family and with others. Um, the uh, uh, he was released by um, the people who took him and uh, U.S. military was actually able to pick him up on the streets of Iraq and successfully get him back. Uh, to safety. So that was a fantastic case. And then one other case um, I actually deployed out on was where we went down to Haiti. Um, and in Haiti, there were, um, uh, during this time, there were, there were weekly, there were hostage, uh, uh, hostage issues, people being taken. And um, we were down there and successfully, we were able to recover two individuals uh, who had been um, kidnapped separately, and both were successfully, successfully returned to their families. So on those, again, fantastic, you know, that we were able to, to mm -hmm. do that um, working, you know, down in, down in Haiti, we worked with the UN people um, in Iraq, we worked with the military and the Philippine ones, we worked with the Philippines as well as other members of the US uh, law enforcement. One of the most significant events to affect the US in the past um, 20 years is obviously 9-11. Uh, uh, it affected not only New Yorkers, America as a whole, but the global community because it brought the threat of terrorism, I think, really to center focus. And as a result of that incident and the traumatic loss of life, um, a lot of people's roles were realigned into counterterrorism, yours being one of those. Are you able to talk us through 9-11 from your perspective what you were doing and the impacts it had on you both professionally and personally who are you talking to? oh god oh my god United 175 New York we have some problems over here right now we might have a hijack over here two of them you all Just north of Crystal City. Just to the north of your town. Yeah, stop all the parkers. 
Yeah, uh, you know, um, just like uh, all the agents in New York, all the law enforcement in New York and, and, and the general public, uh, you know, things changed on 9-11. Um, you know, uh, I, I happen to be in New York. Um, I was in the office at 26 Federal Plaza, which is downtown, about five blocks from the towers. And um, uh, we were, uh, I was actually going to a meeting about hostage negotiating um, just to get some training or whatever we were going to do. And uh, that's when the first plane hit. And we felt the, the, the rumble. And we actually thought, because 26 Federal Plaza is, is an older building, we go, oh, something happened in the elevator shaft. Something. We really had no idea. Um, and then we heard that a plane had hit the towers. And so we, we went down and we, we went out and we started going to, to, the, to the towers. Um, but I actually um, was called back. Um, and to be quite honest, I was much luckier than, than other agents. Um, uh, you know, who had, you know, stories of, of unbelievable stories of what happened down at the towers. Um, I, I, I was called back and I um, was asked to become part of a command post because I'm an attorney and I'm a negotiator and, you know, I could help out with that. So I, I went to the command post at 26 Federal Plaza and that's when the second plane hit. And um, it was devastating. But um, right away, you know, my boss said, uh, okay, you know, what do we know? What don't we know? What do we do? Let's start working. Let's start working the case right now. Because when the first plane hit, you didn't know if it was an accident. Hmm. When the second plane hit, you knew it wasn't an accident. And so at that point, everyone turned from, oh my God mode to let's find out, you know, who did this to us. And that's when the investigation began. Um, and uh, again, I was just, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't a fly on the wall, but I was close to it, you know, and um, I, I maintained uh, my presence with the with that um, because I was a negotiator. I was actually asked uh, later in the day to go work with the SWAT team in case SWAT was deployed anywhere. And so we basically went to a street corner and we sat on a street corner uh, for a day waiting to be deployed. But because the investigation was just spinning up and the people who committed the act were on those planes, there was nowhere to deploy the SWAT team of the FBI at least at that point in time. And so from there, I was asked uh, uh, to um, help out again with legal matters, but also to, to just become one of the agents covering leads. There were a lot of leads to be run down. Agents, cops, agents from other agencies were involved. We were all asked to come in and be part of the investigative process to go figure out what happened. And so I became one of those agents investigating those leads. During events of significant tragedy, we, we had a similar experience here in the UK with the 7-7 attacks. You see, you, you know, you sometimes feel that as members of the public, we kind of keep our space from each other and we kind of just we just get on with our lives and there isn't much interaction. But in times of tragedy, we look out for each other and we see opportunities to support each other. And, and you've got quite a lovely story in terms of uh, members of the public seeing you and your colleagues from SWAT standing on a corner for hours and hours and hours and coming down to give you some aid to support you. Tell us about that story, because I think out of significant tragedy, there's always nice stories of where people have seen an opportunity to help. Yeah, they, you know, there were there were a couple of things that happened, but one of them was, you know, we, we, were, we were sitting on that street corner. We had been there for eight hours, 10 hours, you know, and, you know, we're just sitting there and, you know, all of a sudden a car, you know, 
station wagon pulls up and, you know, woman, man, you know, probably in their 30s, get out of the car and um, they go to their trunk and they pull out of their trunk uh, water and um, and power bars, you know, uh, energy bars. And it, not just like one or two, they, they they have crates of it and they're taking the crates and they, they start carrying it over and putting it in front of us. And we're like, what, what's going on? You know, uh, and they go, um, well, you know, um, this is for you guys. And we're like, oh, well, thank you very much. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, and we help them, you know, bring, bring it down. Like, well, you know, who can we thank? Because this is fantastic. We thought it was a corporation that had bought it for us and everything. And we actually find, they tell us that they, they said, no, they were in an apartment and they saw us from down the street and that we had been there for so long and that we were just sitting there and they saw that we didn't have food or water or anything. You know, we were just basically waiting. So they went out to a grocery store on their own bought this all on their own and brought it to us and we're just placing it there. And that's when we realized, if you looked in the car, their baby was in the back seat. And literally, wow. that's what must have oh. happened. They left their apartment, they went and bought this first, and they didn't want anything for it. You know, they were just thanking us for doing what we do. And to be quite frank, the FBI, we don't get thanked that office. You know, um, <laughs> usually if the FBI shows up at your door, it's not for a good reason. And so um, it was very heartwarming that little act of kindness mm. was like almost like a, a, a sea change and then um something that just you know when you'd come into new york after 9-11 for like the first couple of months you'd go down the highway and because no one was allowed to drive for a certain amount of time because of the attack and because they had to get the emergency vehicles and everything when you drive down the highway people were on the side with with signs and they'd be cheering for you and again, wow. that's something that I'm used to, you know, where people are cheering for us just because we're going to do what we, you know, we're going to do our job. We're going to go do what, you know, what, you know, we're paid to do, but what is our career? You know, what is our calling? And that is to find out who committed these acts. And from that point onwards, am I right in saying that you transferred into the counterterrorism division of the FBI to carry out these investigations and to be part of the investigative process? Yeah, I actually took, you know, what you'd call a, a, a voluntary demotion um, because I left being an attorney, which is a, you know, a, um, a supervisory role, so to speak. And I went back mm -hmm. to being a street agent, you know, on a squad. Um, it was the uh, it was the threat squad in New York and the threat squad, um, you know, had been around. It was actually a different squad prior to 9-11. It was the case squad. But because of 9-11, they greatly expanded the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Um, there were only a few squads prior to 9-11. After 9-11, it, it blossomed to like 15 squads. And one of the squads, they called the Threat Squad. And this squad was to go out and, and basically run down any threat in the, in the New York region. So I went there as an agent. And then after a, um, a certain amount of time, I was actually promoted up. And I became the supervisor of that same squad. And then during that period of time, your squad is responsible for all the calls that are coming in, a level of oversight over the calls that are coming in from members of the public, other agencies as to concerns, as to threats to New York itself. And I think we spoke about it off air that we're talking conservatively over the two years that you're there between 10 and 16,000 calls of which your team is assessing proactively 2,000 of those, which were you know justified to be looked at in particular and then onwards from that, you're looking at, you know, 20 to 40 cases which require some level of investigation. So the workload was very, very high during that period, yeah? 
Yeah, uh, you know, this squad, which <clears throat> prior to 9-11 had probably 15 people, and again, they were doing other type of work. After 9-11, it's now 70 investigators. We have three shifts, so we're working 24-7 um, uh, on these threats. And if a case came in, it had to be investigated. So we took, for our squad alone, 2,000 investigations during that period. And then wow. other anywhere from eight to 14,000, we doled out to other investigative agencies to help us. So all the threats were looked into. It was just, we looked into certain of those. And then while looking into them, some of them turned out to be nothing, okay? Some of them though, turned out to be criminal, that people committing criminal acts. And so we would give that to a criminal squad or the police and let them investigate that. But then there was that handful of cases that became full cases in the FBI for terrorism. And one case actually became uh, a fairly well-known case that was tried where they were able to I identify and arrest individuals who wanted to blow up the gas tanks at JFK International Airport and cause destruction, um, kill hundreds of people, et cetera. Um, and that call came in through this call center. So, you know, if you're doing it as a batting average, it was a terrible batting average. But if you look at it from, we cannot let another terrorist attack happen to the best of our ability, then it was well worth our effort of going through 20,000, you know, or 2,000 to 16,000 threats, but, but finding this one. And of course there were others, but finding that one, that paid for itself. The events of 9-11 appear to have changed quite dramatically the, the careers of many investigators in the FBI in terms of, as you say, the huge expansion of counterterrorism investigations and the need to be on high alert in terms of these concerns from members of the public and other agencies about maybe potential further threats. Would, do you think your career would have still gone into the counterterrorism direction or would did you have your eyes set on other aspects of the investigative work prior to 9-11? Yeah, you know what? Prior to 9-11, I, I was an attorney, um, mm. you know, for the Bureau. I might, might have stayed in that for a while. Um, I had done my time in organized crime. I might have stayed on the, on the criminal side. Um, the, the good thing about the FBI also is that, you know, we do a lot of different things. So if I wanted to expand my horizons and go into public corruption or something else, uh, listen, I might have ended up in counterterrorism, too, or in counterintelligence. Um, but because of 9-11, there was no doubt in my mind that I wanted to be, you know, going out. I wanted to go after terrorists at that point. And then your move in roughly about 2004 across to the JFK airport, the threat squad that looked into threats against aviation. That's a very unique, particular area of expertise. What what made, what kind of pushed you in that direction? I had been working on the threat squad, which was, again, a 24-7 um, operation. And not that I wanted to change, but I thought maybe something different would, would, be, would, be, would be advantageous to me and to the FBI so that you don't get burned mm -hmm. out or whatever. So I changed a little bit. We were still doing threats, but I went to JFK and I, I, I'd flown out of JFK my entire life. So I knew the airport, but I didn't realize really what JFK was about until I got there. JFK is a city unto itself. It's got thousands, tens of thousands of people who work there, hundreds of thousands who go through the airport. Um, it's got its own little life there. And so while I was, we were doing threats to both, uh, we, we handled both the criminal side 
and the terrorism side. So it kind of expanded my horizons there. We had organized crime at the airport, which is a well-known thing. If you go back to the Lufthansa case, you know, which is a famous case that uh, Goodfellas talks about, the movie Goodfellas. JFK has always had this, this, you know, interaction with FBI and with investigations, but then after 9-11, it became a focal point on terrorism. And so I, I wanted to be part of that, that group and also learn new things and, and, and continue to expand my career. The 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 9/11 incident also uh, opened up, uh, you know, Afghanistan as a as a as a as an area of conflict because Al Qaeda and its leader Osama bin Laden uh, were predominantly based there, uh, and that obviously led to future conflicts in terms of combating terrorism and the threat of Al Qaeda on the global security, um, which was led by the Americans and supported by NATO and other countries such as the UK and elsewhere. You deployed to Afghanistan yourself for four months. What was that experience like going in to Afghanistan as an FBI agent carrying out investigations with security services and other partners in the investigative arena to try and assist in combating threats to the world security? The biggest thing we do here is protect the homeland from afar. We know that it's a long fight against adversaries that want to bring harm to the United States for whatever reason from overseas. We need to be prepared to combat that wherever that might happen. So that's a big part of our job here. The FBI is the shield in the United States of America. What 911 taught us is that uh, you can't defend from the shoreline of the United States of America against terrorism. Uh, you have to uh, have the shield extended globally. The FBI is the premier uh, law enforcement and investigative agency uh, in the world. And so when it contributes to this kind of effort, it brings unique capabilities. gratification from doing this type of work is second to none. When I go back to the States and my, my squad in Philadelphia, I'm going to basically, I think, be a subject matter expert. I'm seeing things just with my own eyes, and that's something that you can't really see in the news. We've been able to bring an investigative capacity here to address corruption, kidnapping, and organized crime. There's something going on every day, even though we work seven days a week, you don't feel like you're because you do feel that there's a sense of accomplishment. It's, uh, it's awesome work. I did organized crime for 10 years in New York. And then to me, right over here, uh, trying to go against the Taliban is organized crime. Mm. It's a highly professional organization. It's disciplined, uh, serious, uh, mission-oriented, always focused. And so, as the United States ambassador, I gotta say that uh, when it comes to just trying to inspire all the tribes of the U.S. mission here, I like to have the uh, FBI tribe up front. Well, first of all, I was not military, and I just put that straight out. You know, I never was in, in you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. I, I never was one, and so going there. 
Um, I will say that, and and by the way, it was it's fully voluntary. No one forced me to go. Um, so uh, I went there with quite a bit of apprehension because I did not know what I was getting into. I had never mm-hmm. been to that part of the world. I had never been to a war zone. I had never done any of that. Um, but once I got there and I worked with the military over there, and you know I was lucky enough to work with you know, Green Berets and SEALs and other members of the Special Forces. I was able to work with other intelligence and law enforcement agencies. I was able to work with other partners from other parts of the world, the UK. I, I worked with, you know, members of the UK military over there, Canadian military, et cetera. You know, name, the, name the, the, the partners that were there. I was able to work with them. And it was fantastic in the sense of it opened up a whole new uh, you know, not a whole new world, but, you know, a whole new um, um, area of work that I had never known about. And mm. I met people that I would never have met unless I had been in that circumstance. And it also was, in my my belief, it was invaluable in how it helped the United States, because our goal there was to, one, help protect the military. So we were doing some counterintelligence work, um, but also we were there to assist the military if they identified any connections to threats to US or our allies. And so when we were there, if they identified phone numbers, addresses, if somebody mentioned something about somewhere in the United States or elsewhere, we were there on the ground to assist. We helped with the interviews of people who were um, uh, uh, apprehended, you know, you know, out, you know, um, who were thought to be a threat to the United States or to its partners. And so we're, they were able to do those interviews. And so I was, uh, I went there as the deputy on scene commander. So, um, you know, I, I helped supervise and, and, and provide assistance both to the FBI agents who were there and to the military when needed. Was it a busy posting for you during those four months? Was it a period of intense work? Yeah. And, you know, um, there, there, there are no days off over there. Um, you work, you know, you work your shift, but then at times, especially when you go, you know, when you're on base, it's a certain way you work. Then when you go off base and you're going out to the, um, to the forward operating bases, you know, it's a completely different type of life out there. Um, and then when you're actually, uh, working and doing the interviews, it's an ongoing process of, of, you know, taking interviews, evaluating the interviews and then determining if there's actionable intelligence within those interviews. And if so, then to immediately jump on that. Um, mm-hmm. But just like everything, th- there were extreme times of boredom where you'd be sitting there, you know, and then to extreme times of action where, you know, you'd be outside the fence line and working with the special forces on their operation and providing support to them as needed. I talk about throughout the podcast and we mentioned it at the start in terms of the support networks that stand behind us husbands wives partners and families that allow us to do the work that we do but equally uh, managing their fears their anxieties as to what we're being exposed to and the vulnerabilities that we may be placing ourselves in a war zone is up there with probably one of the the greatest challenges anybody has to deal with how do you how do you support your family in understanding that you're okay and you're safe and that you'll be fine. It must be a difficult task to manage those emotions. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there was apprehension in the beginning. And then because we're able to call back, you know, um, uh, you know, we didn't have a FaceTime or anything back then, but, you know, we were able to at least call back and I could send emails often. 
because we did work in an office, you know, for part of the time. So I could send emails as needed. So they, they knew I was okay. In fact, the only time my daughter, my eldest ever cried was I was there on New Year's Eve and I sent back a picture of myself um, with what we call a near beer, which is a fake beer because you can't drink beer on US military installations. So it's fake beer and a cigar. And my daughter started crying because I was smoking a cigar and she thought that I was going to die from smoking the cigar. And so, <laughs> so my wife had basically explained I was allowed one cigar a year and it was on New Year's and that's why she got that picture. So other than that, I, I think they were pretty much okay um, because again, I was able to tell them, you know, I was able to show them that I was okay. And listen, there's also security. You know, I'm not calling them back and saying I'm going outside and I'm doing certain things because I'm not telling anyone that. The work we did there, we did, and we kept that in-house. And then, you know, when it's over, you get home. And then there's managing your own mental health and well-being in terms of the amount of work of and the pressures that you're exposed to over time. Up until this point, you've worked on organized crime. You're a trained hostage negotiator. You've seen and been involved directly with the impacts of 9-11. All of these have an impact on us all personally and professionally. Were you able to, it sounds like you were able to compartmentalize all these different stresses that didn't overwhelm you. Were there any, how, what was your mechanism to overcome and deal with the stresses and the pressures associated with such intense investigations? I work, I work out, I work out quite a bit. And so, um, you know, we were doing, um, uh, I actually went over there, uh, heavy. And, um, when I came back, I, I was actually in, in, in shape when I came back. And part of that, I think was, that's part of my mechanism. I go out for long runs, I work out and I compartmentalize quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think actually the FBI helped me with that because during the nine 11 time and after, and even throughout the rest of my career, you know, you, you, we're running and gunning. You're going after the terrorists. You're doing what you got to do. But when you get home, you know, my family doesn't care about that. You know, I got to, you know, you got to be, you know, you know, dad, or you have to deal with, you know, the normal things. And so you, you have to be able to um, separate those two things. And I, I've been pretty good a, about doing that. Um, real quick story. If we go back to the hostage negotiating, you know, we were down in Haiti we get the hostage is back. The hostage is back. And we do that very quickly, and we're the kings. You know what I always say is we were masters of the universe at that time. We do it. We get them back. We're out of the country. I fly back home. I get to JFK. I'm working with the JFK cops. They drive me home in like with lights and sirens because I did the job. We did. We did great. You know, and I'm the master of the universe. I did that all great. I get to my house. I get to the door open the door and I figure my wife is going to be, Oh, you're, you know, you're, you're the hero. She literally goes, here's your kid. There's a dirty diaper. we got 20 minutes. We're going out and you're driving because I'm drinking. Hey, you better compartmentalize because you're not the master of the universe. Welcome back to earth. Oh, what an incredible story. I want to talk about um, your later move back into organized crime, but this time, in a very in a senior supervisory role between 2000 and 2008 you're overseeing organized crime investigations within the mafia but this time as a boss within the FBI what's the difference suddenly uh, you're taking on a leadership position you're overseeing the management of of FBI agents that are carrying out that work you you know more strategic now you're overseeing budgets you're understanding kind of where you've got 
ends you need to prop up or support. You know, got the whole HR component, which is often the downfall of many supervisory roles in policing. How was that transition back into organized crime, but at a supervisory level? Not as much fun. Um, yeah, you know, you, you're not you're not going out as much. You you get to go out a little bit, but in, again, you're not the guy you know kicking in the door or or talking to the mob guys. You know, your guys are doing that. Your team is doing that. You know, the men and women of the FBI are out there every day and they're doing that. Now I'm supervising that, you know, um, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a higher position. And it, it, listen, it was good because I got to see a lot more of the FBI. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I missed that. I missed the street a little bit, but, but it was good because, again, I, one thing I think I'm good at, and again, maybe this goes to compartmentalization, but I can see that, you know, I'm able to look at one thing and then look at the next and look at the next. And so I think I was able to handle those issues well. Plus, the guy who was above me within organized crime was a fantastic friend of mine um, who was also, he was the assistant special agent in charge. And together, I think we were able to do a lot of good work on organized crime. He came from um, going after Asian organized crime. I came from the Bocosa Nostra side. La, uh, La Cosa Nostra side. So together, we now had that different experiences that we were able to do use and help direct the squads. And then it's only a short time before then you move back into counterterrorism, into the New York office, into a reactive branch, which again, you're overseeing. And again, a significant team that you're leading because now you're looking into a response team that looks into WMD response, terrorism threats, in various different forms. Was the counterterrorism bug one that you wanted to get back involved in? Is that why you, you kind of moved out of organized crime and back into what were familiar surroundings for quite some time? Yeah, I, I, it, I definitely was aiming to get back to counterterrorism. It's where I wanted to go. Um, I was very happy that they brought me back there. Um, and, you know, working with, you know, I knew a lot of the agents, I knew a lot of the detectives, um, you know, uh, you know, I joke around a little bit about it, you know, when I say this, but I also say it from a place of love. Um, the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force is the oldest, it's the biggest, and it's the best. And I wanted to be part of the best, okay? Um, we were going out, uh, you know, again, they've done, they were doing cases um, uh, that were just, you know, um, uh, fantastic. I mean, they, they had done the embassy bombing cases, you know, they had done um, all these fantastic cases in the past, and now we were doing other cases um, going after the terrorists around the world based out of the New York office. And so getting onto the Joint Terrorism Task Force and, and having my focus more CONUS-based, but mm. still dealing with around the world, um, was what I wanted to do. I wanted to come back. I'm a New Yorker. I was very happy that the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force was focused on protecting New York and the United States. One of the other challenges that we faced as a global community when it comes to terrorism and countering it is understanding how people are radicalized, the information that they're fed through, what makes them become individuals who want to hurt and destroy communities by way of, you know, leaving incendiary devices and other bits and pieces which cause harm. You oversaw and took part in an investigation where there were threats made towards synagogues to blow aircraft up by one individual and some counterparts who are radicalized in the jail community. Can you tell us a little bit about that investigation, the challenges of dealing with people that are radicalized inside prisons? Yeah, um, uh, you know, 
we, we were given this information through one of our uh, sources uh, that there was somebody who um, had approached him and wanted to commit an act of terrorism. Um, and, you know, as the case progressed a little bit, uh, he talked about that he wanted to uh, um, uh, shoot down a plane uh, that was carrying um, uh, uh, soldiers that was going to Afghanistan because there's a base in upstate New York where that would come out of. And so uh, we were able to not only use our informant, but start um, working on that case and um, figure out a way to um, have him commit the act in a sting operation, but protect soldiers, you know, and the plane. But what also happened during that time is he said, well, that's not enough. I also want to kill Jews. And, you know, how do I do that? And where do we do? And basically, um, uh, he was going to, uh, he wanted to blow up some synagogues in, in the Bronx. And he identified the synagogues. So through our operation, we were able to actually supply him fake um, explosive devices for the synagogues, as well as a fake um, Stinger missile. And so we gave, he, we provided both those to these four individuals. Um, and on the day of the operation, we had surveillance operations follow them down from the, the place in upstate New York, or in not upstate New York, but outside of New York City. We followed them down into the Bronx. They literally put the two devices in front of the synagogues. And then because we had supplied them the phone, when they put the code in to hit the phone, nothing happened, of course, but it but it notified us that they had done that. And that's when wow. NYPD emergency services went and arrested them forcefully. You know, they blew out the windows uh, because they were mm -hmm. sitting in a vehicle. Um, and then they arrested all four. And all four, uh, so they, we arrested them for actively trying to blow up the synagogues. And we actually, we still have those devices. They look like explosive devices. And then we took it down, though, before we were, before they were allowed to go up and um, try to shoot down the plane, even though we had it under our control and that Singer missile was a fake missile, we it was decided that they wanted to um, make the arrest as quick as possible so that there would be no uh, no possible threat to the community. And so they were taken down at that point. Must be quite an incredible feeling to be part of an investigation where you know you've had such a huge impact on a, on on an incident which could have gone incredibly badly, and and ultimately you've saved the lives of thousands of people. There's a lot of personal satisfaction, I would imagine, with a case like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, listen, I, I have no trouble talking about myself, you know, and and, and <laughs> the FBI were very good at claiming uh, claiming um, uh, responsibility, you know, for that uh, for, for for solving cases, but. On this one, I will say, you know, I supervised it. I was, you know, the ASAC on it. But the case agents that were on this, the guy who um, um, uh, was the um, case agent um, directing the operation from that street level, his supervisor, the people who supported him, as well as the SWAT teams that were on it. We had several SWAT teams on it, uh, NYPD, ESU. All of this together was how we took that guy down. I'm very happy about the part I did, but I would be, um, um, it, it wouldn't be true to say I did this, you know, uh, that, mm -hmm. that it's all because of me. I was one 
part. I was one cog in it, and I was very happy to be that cog. But that, I think, is why the JPTF is so good, the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York, because we put all these things together and we're able to take down exceptional cases. And then if you look at it from afar, that's why I think the FBI cases, you know, across country where you have these operations that go across the country are able to operate because we work together throughout the country. And then an extra layer of complexity in the world of countering terrorism is then managing the individuals that go overseas to undertake training at camps in various different countries. I suppose a couple of those we can name Afghanistan and Pakistan have been a couple of locations where people have received training uh, on how to carry out acts of terror against others and then returned back to countries such as the US. And, and you have an operation which is fairly significant, Operation High Rise, where you've got individuals that have gone away, have been actively trained as foreign fighters, have come back and are planning to execute their strategy of causing significant disruption and death on the subways. Their investigations, which are incredibly tense, and, and I imagine the pressure that comes with those must be significant from the surveillance part of it, from the gathering the evidence part of it, to the point where you need to execute arrests to prevent a significant loss of life. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that one? There are chilling new details this morning about Al-Qaeda's failed attempt to blow up the subways here in New York as a fourth man is reportedly arrested in Pakistan for the foil plot. It's the headline story this morning in the New York Daily News. Inside subway bomb plot. Juan Zarate joins us from Washington. He's CBS News national security analyst. Juan, good morning. Good morning, Harry. There is chilling information inside this, very specific details about both Times Square and Grand Central as being the targets for this bomb plot. Yeah, Harry, uh, this underscores the importance of this plot and the disruption. This is one of the most serious plots we've seen from al-Qaeda since 9-11. And we know that the four individuals who were recruited to hit the subway lines in New York were p planning on dispersing throughout the system, hitting it at rush hour. and putting them themselves in place to have maximum impact on the trains themselves. And so this is chilling, a chilling reminder again that al-Qaeda was intending on hitting the New York subway system. And it's very important to remember that these guys grew up out in Queens. These are not foreign-born. This does not come from, a, from some foreign source. They were able to go out. They were trained in Pakistan to come back, let those ideas germinate, and then get somewhat close to actually pulling it off. That's right, Harry. And this, is, uh, this has been a disturbing trend over the past uh, year, year and a half, where you've seen Americans who have been drawn to uh, the fight in places like Afghanistan or Pakistan or even Somalia are then uh, tapped by al-Qaeda or these organized terrorist organizations to possibly go back to the United States to hit targets in the homeland. That, that's what makes this uh, particularly dangerous. It's also interesting to me, as I was looking through this, you realize just how replicatable something like this is. Even if Zazi and his pals failed, it's not to say it won't be tried again. No, that's right, Harry. And uh, we know that the terrorists, Al-Qaeda and others, have targeted trains in the past. London in 2005, Moscow in 2004, Moscow just again uh, recently this year. And so this is a, a target uh, of choice for the terrorists, and I think they know uh, how to do it, unfortunately, and I, we have to be vigilant about it. And maybe much easier to get on a subway train than it is to get on an airplane. That's right. That and uh, you get maximum impact, especially at the time of a rush hour where you've got people packed in. Uh, for
Yeah, uh, this case was uh, Operation High Rise was was unbelievable in how everyone worked together successfully to 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 take down this operation. It, the operation did not start in New York. This was actually out of the Denver office of the FBI, and through intelligence, they were able to determine that um, an individual was coming to the to New York um, to blow up the subways, and so we began surveillance on him out of the Denver office, and we had to hand off surveillance three or four times as he's coming into New York. And at this point, all we have is him. But then through our analytics, working through with our analysts, working with other agencies, um, we're able to determine that he had probably traveled with two other individuals. So now we have three individuals, but now we have to identify the other two. And so we identified those two individuals. So now we've got um, uh, three that we're looking at. But we don't know that it's just three. So we actually have to now expand, expand the universe of the re these three individuals and track down who they know. And so now, the, you know, we're looking at opening up other investigations to determine who is who and who's connected to, to, to what. Um, by the way, these three individuals that were the main focus of this case had never been on the radar of the FBI. And so this all started from like a from a from a stop start to, to now we're going 100 miles an hour and we're literally going 100 miles an hour across the U.S. trying to track this guy, these guys. And they make it to New York and they come into New York and, you know, a whole a whole investigative thing goes on where um, they do find out that we are on to them. So they get rid of the evidence that we were going to get. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So now we've got to find new evidence on them. And going back to the Denver office, they're actually able to find out where this individual was making his explosive devices. And they've got now the forensics from there. So now we've got the forensics. And then we've got other videotapes of them trying to buy um, the precursors to explosives in certain stores in the Denver area. Well, now that they're in, the U in New York, we now have to check every store that sells these precursors. They sell them in pool stores. They sell them in Home Depots, you know, in, in, in home goods stores. They sell them, you know, in, in uh, hardware stores. We're able to get everyone in the tri-state area, you know, involved in law enforcement to go out to every hardware store, every pool store, hundreds of stores through the tri-state area. I think in less than a day, we were able to determine if anything was sold that would have been important to us throughout the tri-state area. It was an unbelievable um, uh, um investigative work that was done to, you know, to, to determine that. And then because we also now believe that these people have talked to other people, we don't know. So we've got to go out and find out what else is known. We execute search warrants one night. I think we executed 10 search warrants in one night all together at the same time. And wow. that had to happen. Um, it was just an ongoing, uh, 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 work of, uh, uh, of um, uh, investigation that was uh, done by the Joint Terrorism Task Force and all of our partners. Again, you know, being the biggest, it does help that we're able to bring in all of these other departments. And so we're able to do this. And in the end, we were able to arrest all three individuals. Two of them pled guilty. One went to trial and was convicted after trial based upon, by the way, information provided by the, the two co-defendants. So we're able to get all three and they're still in jail. Another investigation, the last one I want to really touch on, is your experiences in Somalia. 
with the Westgate shopping mall incident, which I th- you, you know very closely. You were deployed there. You carried out investigations and oversaw them. Uh, it was a matter which, again, affected global communities because not only were there, was there a significant loss of life of children in that incident, there you know the re- there are often a number of global agencies that are called called upon in times of crisis globally, and the FBI is one of those. Um, tell us a little bit about that investigation again, flying out of the country, slightly out of your comfort zone in terms of in a, in a country that you don't have much experience in, but having to try and deal with and overcome and investigate a very, very complex set of events which has led to a, which has led to a high loss of life. reportedly being held under siege. Shoppers are held by gunmen, and unconfirmed reports indicate that several people have been shot... Eyewitnesses say an unknown number of gunmen burst into the mall through multiple entrances, firing shots at the ceiling and tossing grenades. At first, panicked shoppers assume it's a robbery. But then, eyewitnesses say, the gunmen tell all Muslims in the building to leave. According to some reports, asking them the name of the Prophet Muhammad's mother to prove their faith before they exit which would leave the non-Muslims as hostages and targets. At least 18 gunmen believed uh, to be within the West Gate, having taken control of the mall. Right now, police, as we understand, have been able to gain access. We do understand the death toll now stands at at least four people. The gunmen move from store to store, shooting people randomly. Hundreds of terrified shoppers try to flee or attempt to hide inside stores and stairwells. Many escape however they can. Kenyan authorities storm the mall in pursuit of the gunmen, who've sequestered themselves somewhere inside the huge complex with an unknown number of hostages. The standoff has begun. Hallways and corridors turn into battlegrounds with desperate shoppers caught in the midst of it. 30-year-old Bendita Malakia from North Carolina tried to run after she heard shooting, but ended up hiding for four terrifying hours before she finally escaped. We stood up and we started to turn and then there was a second, then we heard machine guns. And then uh, we started to run and there was a second explosion which knocked us on the ground. As the Kenyan military takes control over more of the building, survivors begin trickling out. Mom, everything's fine. Don't worry. By late Saturday afternoon, the terrorist group Al-Shabaab comes forward claiming responsibility for the attack in a series of tweets, also indicating one or more of the gunmen may be American. Sunday, and the siege continues. By midday, the Kenyan government announces 59 are dead, more than 175 wounded. Among them, 26-year-old American Elaine Dang, who spoke by phone from the hospital. I'm okay. I'm very grateful to be alive. The gunmen are still inside the mall, still holding hostages. By Monday, day three of the standoff, the Kenyan government says their forces have taken control of most of the building. The process of evacuating hostages have gone on very well, and we are very certain that if any, there are very, very little hostages in the building. Later in the day, heavy gunfire, 62 confirmed dead. The fourth day of the standoff has now begun. Yeah, so that was, again, unbelievable actions by the FBI in the sense of there's an attack in Nairobi, Kenya at the Westgate Mall. And the um, attack happens, and then we start getting intelligence and information that 
you know, 50, 60, 70 people might have been killed, hundreds injured, and this might have been done by, um, uh, you know, numerous terrorists. And so we start, we, we see that that's happening. Um, and so we start getting ready, thinking that maybe we're going to be asked to help out. The New York office um, has helped uh, on other cases in Africa, and it's an extraterritorial um, uh, squads that we have that will go and actually investigate in other countries when allowed. And so we begin the process of dealing with our ambassador, as well as with the locals in Kenya, you know, with Kenyan authorities to see if they will let us in country. And we have a legal attache who is based in Kenya, and he starts the process of talking to law enforcement and intelligence assets over there to see if they will let us into a system. He gets us permission and we fly over. We actually fly over with 80 people. Wow. And, uh, it's investigators. It's forensic uh, experts. We have a forensic anthropologist. We have engineers because the mall has been almost, it seems like it's been blown up because the, um, the middle section caved in. And so we're going to have to do this search in the middle of basically a caved in building. So we're bringing in our engineers who are experts. We're bringing in people who will protect us. We're bringing in our, our hostage rescue team goes with us. Um, we're bringing in uh, analysts. And again, you know, so we have an entire cadre and we basically fly into country and build an FBI office in a garage in Kenya. And so we begin this investigation and Again, we are invited in by the Kenyans. We're there to assist them. This is their case, okay? But we're, we're being asked to help them, as well as other countries. The UK was there. Israel was there. Germany was there. Um, Canada was there. Uh, you know, numerous countries were there. So we were all helping out as best we could. Um, luckily, the FBI was able to bring over the most investigators, so we had a larger part of the investigation. Uh, plus, we could stay there longer. Um, because of that, but again, we worked with everyone. Um, and, and to tell you a little bit about what happened, um, through our investigation, we were able to determine this. Four individuals went there in a car. Two got out on the main level and attacked the uh, Westgate Mall from, from the street. They threw grenades and they had uh, fully automatic weapons. Two other individuals went up to the top roof, which is where the, it's like you could park up there. So they got up there. And at that time, there was a cooking competition for kids on that rooftop. And those terrorists killed the kids and their families that were on the roof. Altogether, I think there were 40 kids who were killed, 60 people overall who were killed. Devastation. And then they then went from both sides, from the bottom, where the first team was and the top, and they started shooting it out throughout the entire mall and killing people. The Kenyans responded and went after them. And through the firefight, whatever happened, it caused the cave-in of the mall. And so when we got there, it was our job to assist in determining what happened and then to determine if we could find any of the terrorists, as well as any of the victims who were in the mall. And so working again with the Kenyans and other partners, uh, that's what we did. And we were able to determine that the four individuals, uh, we found them in the mall, they, were, they, they did perish there. But again, we were able to find out 
that they had communications with other people outside the mall. Um, then that, you know, uh, um, that money was involved, that uh, phone cards, we were able to find the phone cards, other evidence. And through this investigation, um, we were able to identify other people involved in the terrorist attack who were basically supporting these four individuals. And they were all brought to justice under the Kenyan system. Uh, again, another very confronting investigation full of significant trauma. And I think from from my experiences of policing, it's one thing to deal with trauma and death of an adult, um, be it from road trauma or a suicide or from a homicide investigation. But it's another thing to be dealing with the loss of life of a child in such horrific circumstances. How do you support your teams through that? I think it's fair to say not everybody can compartmentalize it as well as some of us. Um, you know, do you have colleagues that are really struggling with those particular investigations and how do you support them in trying to just, or is it a case of everyone puts on their professionalism hat, they put on their FBI hat, they're there to do a specific job and they get through it and then you all debrief afterwards? That's more what happens, it, it, the latter. Um, you know, and again, it's not just FBI. On this one, we had NYPD, we had Department of State personnel, we had other agencies were involved, HSI, you know, there are uh, our DHS partners were involved and you know when you when we get there you know you call it game face you got to put your game face mm -hmm. on that's when we get there everyone puts on their game face i mean listen i have never done um child abuse cases and child pornography cases and all that except as a as a boss above everyone else like i've never done it from the street level and it's because i think i lose my you know lose my mind um mm -hmm. it's something that i find horrific this was kind of like that, but again, because this is the job and it's the job that we volunteered for and that we signed up for, the job, get it done. Go there, let's see what we, you know, what we can accomplish. And and the focus is get justice for those kids to the best that we can. And for us, it was finding finding those involved and anyone who was involved who's not dead, bring them to justice. And so that's, I think, how we get through it, you know, and then, yeah, you'll debrief after and you'll we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, uh, you know, we'll go for a run, you know, we'll we'll drink a couple of beers. We'll tell some stories and we'll kind of, you know, let the pressure off to a degree. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, luckily and when I say this, luckily, um, luckily for us, I think that was enough for the group that was there. OK, Um and if it wasn't, we do provide other assistance. But, you know, while we're there, it was all about about doing the job. 2016, you finished up your career with the FBI, which has been filled with some incredible touchstone moments. As I said from the outset, you've held every position in the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York, an incredible achievement in itself. When you left the FBI and you handed in your badge on that particular day, was it was it a sad moment for you, or was it a moment where you were ready to move on to your next challenge? Both. It was it was incredibly sad. My wife cried. I didn't, <laughs> but my wife did. Um, but I left because you know for for you know reasons that a lot of people leave the government. You know you you know. Got to pay for colleges, got to, you know, you know, listen, the government paid me well, but I have expenses and I had to deal with those. Um, and it was, it was, the, you know, it, it was probably that right time. 
Plus, you know, there is a, um, a uh, end date on your career. Sooner or later, mm-hmm. there's an end date. And so you just have, to, I like being the master of my domain in that I can determine what my end date is and not having somebody else determine that date. Um, and so that I think gave me a little bit of comfort that, okay, I'm going out, I'm going out on my own when it's time for me to go. And so that, that's how it kind of worked out. Um, you know, uh, when I joined the bureau, when I came to the New York office, I was offered a car ride into Manhattan, but I'm a New Yorker. I, you know, I came from New York. Um, I don't need a car ride. I hopped on the iron horse. I, I hopped on the train and the subway to get in. <laughs> And so on the last day, I'm in the Newark division of the FBI because now I'm the special agent in charge of the Newark office, which is New Jersey. But it's on the train line. And so somebody offered me a ride back to my house. And I said, no, it's OK. And they go, well, how are you going to get home? So I'm going to go home on the way I, get, I came into the FBI. I got on the iron horse and I took that uh, train back into Manhattan and back home to Long Island. So it was uh, it, it kind of made it full circle. It's a lovely way to end. And when you look back on your 21 years in law enforcement, would there be anything that you would change or do slightly different or you would live that same path again? You know what? Whatever, whenever things changed, and a couple of times it didn't change, you know, because I wanted it to, it's because of the way the FBI does things. Um, it all worked out for the right reason. You know, um, I kind of looked back and said, should I have joined the FBI earlier in my career? But then I would have lost the five years as being a prosecutor, which I think definitely helped me in my mm. career. And then mm. I look at it and go, should I have stayed longer in the FBI? But then my kids might not have been able to go to college because I couldn't afford it. You know, so there's a little bit of I think I would have liked to have done certain things a little different. But in the end, I think everything worked out for the best because it's life and it's the way it happened. Well, Richard, the last hour and 20 minutes of our conversations have flown by. It's been quite incredible to hear your stories and your career over 21 years in law enforcement and five years as a deputy district attorney. Um, On behalf of my team here at the Protect and Serve podcast, we thank you ever so much for your service, not only to New Yorkers, but the global community in helping us keep safe and to hold those accountable that wish to challenge and, and, and make the world unsafe. Your work has been incredible, so thank you for that. And we wish you all the very best for your future endeavours in your investigative and legal work. Thank you, Oliver. It was great being here, and uh, um, all the best to you. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work, and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.